please turn to Luke chapter 11, uh, where we'll begin in verse 37 on the passage of Jesus' woes to the Pharisees. Um, I think Henry and Jenny were reading my mail because Jenny brought up that the battle isn't against flesh and blood, and Henry said the kingdom is here now. And so, um, really cool. Please stand in honor of God's word. Uh, it should be on your screen here, flickering as it may be. Mine is over here. So, <laughs> all right. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity. And then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you built their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing since the time of John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said and he said at the beginning of his earthly ministry, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's no surprise uh, what we see here is that Jesus is still about what he calls his father's business. He's about advancing the kingdom to restore what was lost. And so we see this in this picture with the Pharisees. Doesn't it look harsh what he's saying to them? Um, doesn't it look like he's addressing their behaviors and condemning them for it on a surface level? But if you know the character and the love of God, if you know his heart, 
and the love story that is the breadth of Scripture, you know that there's something way deeper going on here, right? That the Lord is getting at something way deeper than their behaviors. He's getting at their heart. And beyond that, it's a kingdom battle that didn't start with hate in their heart, but started with a great lie of the enemy. You see, Jesus says the kingdom is like a man who goes and sows seed in a field uh, to grow wheat. And then he says, and when the man goes to sleep, the enemy enters and plants weeds to grow up among the wheat. And so he says, basically, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like good, and it's like an attack of the enemy. It's like both. It's like where the kingdom of God is, the enemy goes to, to attack. So isn't it clear that you see that here in this picture? They, it says that they invited him to lunch. And that sounds nice, but we know their motives, was to, as per the end of the passage, was to catch them in something that he might say. You see, the context here is the Pharisees' jealousy, their fears, their anger is intensifying. And um, it's because the enemy's anger and jealousy and fears are intensifying. And his influence on them at this point is great. And, um, and so they're try- they, it's really the kingdom of darkness attacking the kingdom of light. But I want to propose to you that the kingdom of darkness did not start with the Pharisees and scribes in this story. And that it's true today that it doesn't start uh, with hate in the heart of people. When you look at Charlottesville, when you look at global terrorism and other hate ideologies, it starts back in the garden. It starts through a lie of the enemy. It starts with an attack, an assault on our identity that says you are rejected, you are abandoned, you are alone, you are orphaned. And so they live from that place, even if it's unknowingly, and they give what they have. You see, they've received the lie of the enemy in the soil of their hearts, and what they've believed they've received, and what they've received they're becoming. Um, And the nature of the spirit realm is like that, whether you're talking about darkness or light. And so what I mean by that is um, Jesus says elsewhere um, that they are, uh, that their father is the father of lies, and that they are making people twice the sons of hell that they are. And here he says, you're full of robbery and wickedness. And what is the enemy known as the thief who's come to steal and to kill and destroy. And so what Jesus is not revealing here is this is your identity. He's exposing to heal because we know that if we know the father's heart, it's not to instigate for the sake of provoking. It's not instigation. It's revelation. It's not condemnation. It's salvation. That he's after. He is exposing the anger in the hearts, the wickedness in their hearts, so that they would repent and be healed. Do you remember what he said? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says of Israel that their hearts are far from me. 
But if they would just turn, they would be healed. So this is the heart of the Lord. This is the heart of the matter. And my one point this morning is that the life in Jesus is the solution to our world's identity crisis. Life in Jesus is the solution to our world's identity crisis. The religious leaders have received rejection and they're living from a place of spiritual death. They don't just need a lens change. They need a resurrection and the resurrection standing right before them, but they can't see it. Their hearts are hardened. They're blind to this. But that doesn't change God's heart for them. You see, the attack is on their identity and their purpose. These are men loved by God. This is, these are people who Jesus died for, like you and me. And every day where the kingdom of God resides, like in you and me, Jesus says the kingdom is not over there or over there. It's inside you or in our midst. The enemy looks for an opportune time to attack your identity, your purpose, and your destiny. And that's what he's doing with the Pharisees. A lot of times it's tempting, right, to read these scriptures and look at the Pharisees and say, yeah, those Pharisees just didn't get it, you know. Um, they just, if they would have just repented, you know, and turned, they would have, and, and it's like we keep them distant from us. But their story is a lot closer. In fact, it's the same as ours. Um, other than the place of turning. And who knows, maybe some of these Religious leaders did turn at some point before they died. So Jesus is getting at their behaviors here. Let's take a look at this, um, at some of these behaviors. One, they disregard love and justice, but they, but they do the act of fulfilling the law in their giving. And so here is a picture of them not having love in themselves, as Jesus says elsewhere. He said elsewhere, he said, you, he said, you search the scriptures that in them you may find life, but they point to me, but you won't come to me that you will have life. And he goes on to say, and you have not the love of God in yourselves. And so here is a picture of them hiding from relationship in shame and they're hiding behind religion. Isn't that, can't that be easy to do to say, well, I go to church or I do these things, you know, but really all that is, is the law that kills and not the spirit of the law who gives life. And so we can't live up to that law and that's why we needed Jesus. So, but here we see that they are hiding behind religion for fear of intimacy. What about when it says they love to be greeted and respected in the marketplaces? All that is, is a fear of man. All it is, is a fear of rejection. They care about what people think about them, and it actually drives their motives, right? And so what, that, what Jesus is saying is, is he's exposing a fear in them of rejection. Or what about when they say, when it, uh, Jesus says of them that you give the people more burdens then they can bear, and you won't even lift your finger to help them. Here he's saying, you're fearful to lose power or lose, you're fearful of loss of control. 
And Jesus says to his disciples elsewhere, don't lord over the people you lead, but serve them. And so here he's saying, you're lording over, you're using these rules. And by the way, in Judaism, they created hundreds of laws in addition to the law of Moses given by God. During that intertestamental period, the 400 years between the last Old Testament writing and and Jesus' earthly ministry, many laws were added by these scribes who interpreted them in such a way. And so Jesus is saying, you've created these laws that people can't live up to and you won't help them. And it's all, again, for fear. And so... And it demonstrates worldly influence of power on their lives. Behavior is a manifestation of what you believe and receive. It's a simple thing. Jesus said, out of your heart comes the words of your mouth. James said that without faith uh, or without deeds, your faith is dead. Why? Because your works manifest what you really believe. What you do shows what you really believe. Is there something that causes fear in you to rise up? Well, God is exposing that even now. Can you say, oh, well, it's, it's, it's this or it's that. God is exposing it not to shame you, but to heal you. He wants you to enter a learning process in discipleship. When he says, follow me, he's saying, come on, I'm inviting you to the deeper life of freedom. I want to heal you. I want you to be free and whole. And so... Um, it's interesting here. We are agents of the kingdom with which we partner. And we are agents of the kingdom with which we partner. And so we give what we have. And that's what I was getting at earlier with the Pharisees and scribes. They've partnered with a lie that's taken root in their heart and manifests in their behavior. And not only that, but then you give what you have. And so Jesus goes on to say this interesting thing that you have to understand the cultural context here. He says that the people walk over you like you're an unmarked grave, he says to the Pharisees. And what he's talking about here is being defiled by touching a dead body. You see, in the Old Testament in Numbers 19, one of the laws of the Lord was uh, not to touch a dead body or else it will defile you. And so the Pharisees would be keenly aware of what he's referencing here. And he's basically saying to them, the, the people you influence, you're influencing, you're making them unclean because of the, what's, what you're saying and doing. He's basically saying, you're spiritually dead and you need resurrection life. Listen to this, what Paul says to the church in Rome. For those who are according to the flesh, set, that's unrepentant, set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And you see that here, right? They're hostile toward God. They're agents of the enemy. The enemy has sent them out to kill Jesus. But it's not their identity. (laughs) Their identity is not orphan. Their identity is not death, their identity is not enemy to God. And the Lord wants to restore that identity of sonship to them. 
Just as the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you believe in a lie, you give power to the enemy. But the enemy has no power over you otherwise for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so the only way he can gain power in your life is access through belief in a lie. Does that make sense? And so conversely, when we believe in the truth, we receive power because the truth we know has the power to transform us or set us free, as Jesus says. And so it's the dynamics are opposite. We, can o- we, we only give power through belief in a lie. We receive power through belief in the truth. And Satan's plan is a three-step plan to lie, attach, and destroy. Um, for those of you who are familiar with uh, military terms or been in the military, it's kind of like attrition warfare. You want to know, familiar with that, that the enemy is just, he's trying to starve you to death. He's trying to take you down a path through the belief in a lie. But all that he can do is try to deceive. And so, a picture of this would be like when uh, 16 months ago, um, I ate something. (laughs) And then um, it started eating me. So, to elaborate... uh, (laughs) To elaborate, um, I got a parasite 16 months ago. I still, you know, I don't know what from. Brandy's didn't know if I'd ever come back to work. Um, but <laughs> she still reminds me of that and tells me where not to eat and where not to go. But, um, but what that parasite did, so it's like if the food was the lie, right, and I'm receiving that lie, and then it attaches and starts to work at you, right? And... Uh, that doesn't mean it's too late for you. Praise God for healing and for antibiotics, um, you know. And God uh, made a public spectacle of death. So um, even death he can bring to life. And even us, we were dead, right? And he made us alive in Christ Jesus. And while we were sinners, he died for us. And so, um, but if you could put on the screen, Lydia, this um, picture of uh, the orphaned heart versus the son, the heart of a son. So what this is, is the renewed mind. Those who have been made new in Christ Jesus, having a, um, a son's perspective. And those who have an orphaned heart uh, are ones, uh, I was in a training a week ago with some of you, and this is uh, actually from uh, Janet Helms, who led that training. It's about half of the the things she showed us regarding this, but I think it's really appropriate for what we see at the heart of the issue for the Pharisees and scribes. So the orphan's heart theology is live by the love of the law, and the son's is live by the law of love. Keep going. The orphan's hearts need for approval, to strive for approval and acceptance of man, and where the son's is, is totally accepted in God's love and justified by grace. The orphan heart's motive behind religious disciplines is duty and earning favor with God. By the way, that's every world religion other than Christianity. That their theology is to strive to maybe earn 
enough favor with God to get in. And whereas with Christianity, it's the opposite. We receive the love of God that transforms our hearts and empowers us for holy living and freedom. And so the son's motive is pleasure and delight. It's the pleasure and delight of the father. We know we're approved. We know we're accepted. And we can live from gratitude and from relationship with him. What about the motive for purity for the orphan? I must be holy to have God's favor. Are any of these speaking to any of you? For yourself and where you're at. Because you may have, you may look at some of these and if you're honest, you say, wow, like I more resonate with the orphan one. And Jesus is exposing that in you right now. And he's exposing it to heal you. He's not exposing it to shame you. Because even now, some of you are tempted as has been a pattern in your life. It's your neighbor, not you. But to, to in shame, hide behind religion and hope that this will get me by or this will get me through. This will earn me favor with God. Meanwhile, I'm not willing to bring this in the light of him because I don't think he loves me. I don't really think he's not angry with me and won't reject me. And for some of us, that's rooted in some hard, in some hard experiences of trauma in our lives where we have been rejected. We have been hurt. And we have been neglected. And so the Lord wants to redefine that for us through a renewed mind. He wants to transform us as we come to him and trust us with the healing process of our hearts and our minds by his healing power. He said the kingdom of God is a matter of power, not of persuasive words. I'm not up here trying to persuade you to, to, to get fixed. <laughs> I'm up here exhorting you to get into God's presence with your stuff that you might be healed by his transforming power. That's the gospel. Okay? I'm going to go into my story here a little bit. I just want to share one story. Um, because I think that, again, the temptation is that, that this is, <clears throat> this is um, far removed from us as we look at the Pharisees and scribes who wouldn't turn to Jesus. Um, I grew up in, a church, in the church, wonderful family, uh, came to Christ when I was around seven years old, and, um, but somewhere around that time, um, for whatever reason, I believed the lie that we were all born into, and that was that I had to earn favor with God, I had to strive to please man, and I was full of all kind of insecurities uh, with that, and it manifested in habitual sin, um, and uh, some other some other issues in my life, um, anger <clears throat> that would you know surface, and I would tuck it down because I was ashamed because I didn't think I was supposed to be angry, and so it was wrong and sinful, and I couldn't bring this before God. I just needed to do right, and get and be better, and <clears throat> and so, um, you know, I had experienced the grace of Jesus, and there were times of definitely growing in my relationship with the Lord. I grew up in a wonderful family. Um, you know, where I was uh, led to the Lord. Um, and so, but somewhere along the way, there was this battle within me, and I had a divided heart. The psalmist says, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. See, my heart was divided. I was an agent of the kingdom of darkness, and I was an agent of the kingdom of light. My, 
There was a battle for my soul going on. And I know this is your story too. And yet, uh, and so about five years ago, the Lord um, gave me a dream. And in the dream, I go out on to a street that's behind the house I grew up in, and I see a man named Paul, who was a dad in the neighborhood at the time I was growing up. And uh, Paul, the only thing I really remember about Paul was that he was a widower. His wife died of cancer. Um, and he and I are having casual conversation, and we walk into the front yard of the house I grew up in. And in the yard is a boy, and it's me. It's a seven-year-old me, and Michael will remember me in my Mets instructional league uniform, um, <laughs> my raccoon Mets uniform. I was literally wearing that in this dream, and everything about the dream was very vivid. And I was in the yard throwing the ball up to myself, and I kept swinging and missing and getting more and more angry. And so then the present day me picks up the ball and starts hitting it to the boy. And, um, and then all of a sudden, a man, the only thing that wasn't descript in the dream at all was this man walking through the yard, just his face. Even his clothes and his body were, you know, were vivid. But his face was nondescript. And I dropped the bat and began, and he came to me. I didn't go to him. He came to me and held me, and I wept in his arms for gratitude that he had always been there. I had a knowing. He had always been there. For me, this man. The dream pans to and, and ends in a living room of a house that's unfamiliar to me, but it's Paul, uh, who I mentioned, Jesus, and me in the dream, and I'm looking at a pirate's uh, like picture book. <laughs> and for me, that's extremely intimate because my parents know I was infatuated with the pirates. Uh, when I was young. Not so much anymore, Jenny, you know, so no long-suffering today. But, um, but, but with that, here's what the Lord revealed to me. One, He healed my heart. Um, he united my heart to fear His name. The, the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, I think I've said this from up here before, but it's really another way of saying that is to delight in Jesus. He made my heart whole uh, for what it's made for, to delight in Jesus. He made me secure in the Father love of God for the first time in my life. And I know that because I never felt this way before. I had never been so free. <laughs> and you know what else he showed me? And, and I'm saying this for you, too, uh, that he not only that he loves me, but he likes me. And he likes the things I like because I like them. <laughs> How many of you are parents who can resonate with that? You know, I remember my dad coming to every one of my basketball games. <laughs> and my dad didn't like basketball growing up. Um, and he wouldn't have liked basketball um, if I didn't love basketball. But his father heart as a man made in God's image grew to love basketball because he loves me. That's what our father's like. And that's the love of Jesus for these men who he's talking to right now. That is the love of Jesus for these men. These men had an anointing on their lives. They were appointed by God to lead the people in the religious aspect of their daily lives. This was an anointing on their lives by God, an appointment by God. Romans says that all leaders are appointed by God. 
And while they weren't following him, um, he appointed them for this. And imagine what their repentance would lead to. See, because the enemy, doesn't it make sense that his attack would be most on those who were appointed to lead the rest of the people and have the most influence religiously? And so I, I just, I'm feeling the burden of the Lord for these men right now. <laughs> you know, the love of God in his heart for them. And so let's take a look at the next slide of the passage in Luke. Uh, we skip, we're skipping some stuff here. All right. Right here, so if you look with me here, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, listen to the son's mindset. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Look what the father does. He does not acknowledge this lie. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. He demonstrates his love to transform the heart of the son and the lies that he's believed. Oh, that's not who I am. This is who I am. Does that make sense to you? And I feel like this morning, I mean, this is one of the things the Lord impressed on me most when I was preparing for this in prayer is that the Lord is putting is ministering to your spirit right now that robe and that ring that you are so loved by God that you are his dear daughter and his loved son he loves you just as you are he sees you as he sees Jesus for those of us who are in Christ Jesus and he wants you to see yourself as he sees you and so he's saying, come into my light and receive the robe, receive the ring that is for you, that is yours in Christ Jesus. While the Pharisees were building a culture of fear because that's what they had to give, Jesus is building a family of love and um, of sons and daughters. And I want to share a story um, as, we, as I uh, close here soon. Uh, of a girl named Kayla. I met Kayla at Hopewell Park with her friend Emily, and I asked if I could pray for them. And um, Kayla said yes, Emily said no, and that's cool because God was uh, doing a new thing in Kayla. And, um, and so as we began to pray, she said to me, can you pray for me related to my depression and my addiction? And so I just asked the Spirit to come and how many of you know that the Lord ministers often to places of poverty? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I would suggest to you that it's good to remain in a posture of poor in spirit. And that the Lord promises to meet us in our time of need. And that our time of need is always. And so it's really good to remain humble and get before the Lord, even in our good seasons, right? Uh, to live poor in spirit, to keep receiving the kingdom of God and what he has for us. Anyway, so the Lord met her in power um, as we asked the spirit to come. And we were praying for the things she asked for. But then I also sense there's something deeper than the depression and the addiction. And so I, um, I started to pray the father's love 
to counteract rejection. That you are not rejected. You are approved. You are loved. And I've never left you or forsaken you. I was always there. And she began to weep as I began to just speak the truth of God's word over her. Because how many of you know that even before belief, that people are sons and daughters who God wants to restore into their true identity? He's restoring what's been lost in you. Whatever is true about you is not the counterfeit kingdom that says you're an orphan. And so anyway, she begins to weep and she says that really resonates with me because my mom left me when I was four. I was rejected. And I asked her if she'd be willing to um, to invite if she'd be willing to remember, recall that in her memory as we continued to pray for her, and she said yes. And as she did, I asked Jesus to show her where he was in that memory. And she began to weep again. And I said, do you see Jesus? And she said, yes. I said, what is he saying or doing? And she said, he's hugging me. And she's weeping. And um, and so there's some more time in ministry. But then, kind of a strange thing, she keep she kept hugging me afterwards and she said, I want to be just like you. And may, may I propose that what she was saying is, I want to be like Jesus. I want Jesus. And she did receive Jesus as her Lord and Savior that day. The healing in her heart from the wound of rejection was a sign and an entryway into the kingdom of God. And now she's restored as a daughter of God into the kingdom. You see, Jesus said to them, see, in God's wisdom, I will send you apostles and prophets. Some of them you'll persecute, some of them you'll kill. And how many of you know that today God is still sending out apostolic and prophetic ministry for the purpose? That's kingdom ministry of the Holy Spirit's power for the purpose of bringing what was lost home. He's bringing in a harvest, and he's still doing it supernaturally because he's a supernatural God. And so what I mean is, in power, he is sending his spirit-empowered church out to proclaim the good news of the gospel with accompanied signs that are supernatural, signs and wonders and miracles, with revelatory gifts to speak strength and encouragement and comfort and to lay bare the hearts of men so that they will turn and repent and worship the Lord their God as they were made to do. God is still sent. See, that's a present day word. He said, I will send to you. He's still sending. (laughs) He's still sending his church to do kingdom ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit to set people free. He said, I've been given all authority And so, and he says, so go and make disciples. And he says, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he's still restoring. See, the the two stories I gave was a picture of him restoring in me what he wanted to restore through me in Kayla's life. That's our story, church. The stories I shared are testimonies of Jesus, and therefore they're your stories too. And... God also has the capacity to perform them again at the release of the word. And it's to overcome 
by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that we share life. We share these stories together. And so in closing, and if the uh, worship team can come forward. God is still sending the Holy Spirit to religion. He's still sending true spirituality where there's only moralism, but no power to live up to the law. And he's still bringing supernatural healing to places where your narrative has kept you in brokenness. See, for some of us, our pain has been legitimate and we've forgiven. But we've allowed the narrative of being wrong to keep us stuck in our pain. And we've even said our pain is worthy to have us because of how bad we were wronged. But that's not the story of the gospel. (laughs) Jesus came to set us free and make us whole. And when new things pop up in our lives, his character and his business never change. It's always his will, wholeness, health, freedom, protection, salvation, deliverance. Love suffers no wrong. You can only suffer no wrong but by the supernatural power of the love of God. Amen. And so we believe all things are possible with God, that he's setting things right, and we're contending for that as a family. And I'm so proud to be a part of Crestmont, and I'm so happy about where God's taking us. We are a family on mission, and he's growing us closer and closer together in those ways. He's pouring out his spirit here, his spirit of prayer, a family of love, rescuing what's been lost in each other and rescuing what's been lost out there.